Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. The book of Genesis, a book of origins. It is aptly named Bereshit in the Hebrew, literally meaning in the beginning. A book with numerous voices, Genesis holds many familiar stories. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the story of Lamech, the flood, and Noah and the ark. And finally, the patriarchal narratives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis is designed to follow two main parts. Chapters 1 through 11 is the telling of the story of God and the whole world. And in chapters 12 through 50, we follow the story of Abraham and his family and their relationship with God. There is a simple theme and tone running throughout the book of Genesis. We find God relentlessly pursuing the reconciliation of a world spinning out of control due to the misguided choices of humankind. In our story today, the young patriarch Jacob has taken two wives, the daughters of Laban, Rachel and Leah. At this point in our tale, Jacob has many sons, has prospered and met with great fortune. So much so that some of his in-laws, saturated by envy, seek to destroy Jacob. So the Lord warns Jacob and instructs him to pack up and move back to his homeland in Canaan. However, on their journey home, Jacob and his family meet some unlikely visitors who turn out to be angels. As we shall hear this morning, this moment turns into a pivotal encounter in Jacob's life. In no uncertain terms, Jacob finds out who he really is. Today's reading is from Genesis 32, uh, verses 22 through 28, from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. We begin a new sermon series today called Five Questions That Can Change Your Life. And I already know what you're thinking. There are far more than five questions that can actually change your life. Questions like, will you marry me? That'll change your life. Or can I pet this grizzly bear? That'll change your life. Or the big one, should I hang the toilet paper in the over or the under position? These are consequential, life-changing, existential questions. But the five questions we'll explore in this series are all replete with the kind of power and potential that can truly alter 
the direction and purpose of our lives. All five of these questions can actually be found in the Bible. And some of them are asked by God, some by messengers of God, but all five are asked of us. They're addressed to us in Scripture, waiting to be answered by us. So whether we're believers or doubters, saints or skeptics, wanderers or wanderers, God puts these questions before us every day of our lives. Who are you? Where are you? What are you doing here? What are you looking for? And what time is it? Whether we're facing a difficult decision, trying to solve a pressing problem, searching for clarity on which way to turn, or thinking about simply making some healthy changes in our lives, these five questions can make all the difference if only we have the courage and presence of mind to ask them. They're simple questions, so simple that you you might underestimate their power and gravitas. But when we dare to ask them of ourselves and dare even more to answer them honestly, we can finally see the ever-unfolding possibilities that God places before us, possibilities for change, for claiming joy and peace in our lives, for finding a renewed sense of purpose and meaning for our lives. And it all begins by asking these five essential life-changing questions, the first of which is today, who are you? It's the, the question asked of Jacob by a stranger in the wilderness story that we heard from Genesis today. Who are you? What's your name? And of course, if there's one thing we all have, it's a name. Now, our name in the world is our identity in the world. Sometimes our names even reveal something about us, maybe about our past or about our heritage. For example, my middle name, Robert, honors my late uncle, Sergeant Robert O'Bannon III, who was killed in action in Vietnam just a few months before I was born. Some of you know me well. If you do, you know that my closest friends often call me Feldman, recalling the story of the day I was knocked out cold on a high school football field when the coach who didn't even know my name, even though I played for him for two straight seasons, stood over me with a whistle pressed between his lips shouting, Feldman, are you all right? Feldman, Feldman. What about you? Who are you? And does your name or your nickname reveal a deeper story about you? Well, Jacob in our story from Genesis today was given a name at his birth that was almost prescient. Jacob was the second born of twins to Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob's twin brother Esau came into the world first, but when Jacob followed, his hand was grasping the heel of Esau. So his parents named the baby Jacob, which means heel grabber. Now, in biblical times, names were more than simply what people were called. They were meant to describe the very essence of a person's character. Names were symbolic of the hopes and the expectations that parents had for their kids. Your name described who you were and what you were meant to become. 
In ancient times, one of the most important things a parent could do was to name their child. So from the outset, it seemed that Jacob was almost destined to be a lifelong heel grabber. In other words, a, a trickster, a, a huckster willing to trip up anyone in order to get what he wanted and to improve his position in life. And that's pretty much how Jacob's life is playing out when we meet him in today's scripture reading. Jacob is a shyster. He's a schmuck. He's a con artist, an opportunist with no conscience, and a pretty long rap sheet. His problems all begin the day he tricks his half-starved brother Esau into trading the family birthright for a simple bowl of stew. Esau comes home from hunting all day. He's dying of hunger. And his little shyster brother says, I give you my stew, you give me the family inheritance. Now, what kind of brother does that? But it gets worse. One day, Jacob tricks his blind, half-dead father Isaac into giving him the family blessing, which according to tradition, belonged to the older son Esau. Jacob dresses up in Esau's clothes and stands before his half-blind, dying father, who lays his hand on Jacob, believing him to be Esau, and blesses him. He says, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. And according to tradition, pronouncing this ancient blessing was the act of formally acknowledging the recipient of the blessing as the principal heir. Once given, it can never be taken back. Now what kind of schmuck would steal his brother's blessing? It all comes to a boiling point when Esau finally discovers what Jacob has done to him, what he's done to the whole family, the betrayal, the grace, the unforgivable deception. Jacob has tripped up everyone in his life. He's burned every bridge. He's broken every trust, and now he must flee. But before Jacob can get out of Dodge, Esau sends his little brother a text message. He says, the day our father dies, I'm going to track you down and kill you. I imagine there was one of those little sad face emojis at the end of that text. You'd think Jacob would finally wise up by now and change his ways, but no. He spends the next 20 years on Uncle Laban's ranch where he marries two of Uncle Laban's daughters, Rachel and Leah. But while working for Uncle Laban, Jacob begins to systematically steal sheep from Laban's flocks until one day Uncle Laban suspects that something strange is going on here. And that's when Jacob, the swindler, shyster, heel-grabbing, huckster, schmuck of a brother, son, and nephew, packs up his family, his belongings, his flocks that he stole, and he escapes into the night. And Jacob thinks he's gotten away with it once again. Except there's still that little nagging issue with his brother Esau, 
who is out there somewhere in the wilderness lying in wait for him. It's been 20 years, but Esau hasn't forgotten his vow to kill his brother. And in today's reading, the, the day of reckoning finally arrives. Jacob, the fugitive, sends his entire entourage across the stream, but he remains behind to spend what may very well be his last night on earth. And in the dark night, he's alone, he's terrified, he's sorry, not sorry for everything he's done. He's still concocting in his mind some plan to get off the hook again. And that's when someone shows up. Most translations of this passage say it's a man, so we assume it must be Esau. But Hebrew Midrash says it's an angel. Later on, Jacob swears it was God. But whatever it was, that someone ambushes Jacob in the middle of the night. A fist fight breaks out, a wrestling match ensues. There's thumping and grunting and yelling. It's back and forth all night. The cloud of dust, the snapping of twigs, the blood, the smell of sweat, the pounding of fists, and neither of them can get the upper hand until just before dawn. Right when it looks like Jacob has the stranger pinned to the mat, that's when the stranger unloads one sharp, carefully directed shot to the inside of Jacob's hip. And Jacob is completely wrecked. The ancient rabbis say it wasn't his hip that took the force, by the way. It was a cheap shop little belt, rendering Jacob helpless and breathless and crippled in pain. And now Jacob finally knows he's been defeated. But he's a heel grabber, and he still won't let go. And for the first time in his life, he's been exposed, but that moment of helplessness is for every one of us, that moment when God can finally give us what we can't grab or steal on our own strength or will. Here is the moment when God can finally give us and Jacob what we need. When all our striving and shrewdness and calculation finally fail us, and we must at last surrender to God. Give me a blessing, Jacob pleads, and I will let you go. You got me, but now I need you to help me. And that's when the stranger says to Jacob, What's your name? Who are you? Jacob, he answers. I'm a heel grabber. Always have been, always will be. And the stranger says, your name will no longer be Jacob because your heel grabbing, deal making, backstabbing days are over. You are no longer Jacob. From now on, your name is Israel because you have wrestled with God and you've lived. Jacob's life is changed in that moment. It all began with that simple question, who are you? It's a question that gets to the heart of what we've done, how we've been living, what for better or worse we've been giving our lives to. When Jacob answers the question, he experiences a miracle of deep interchange. I'm Jacob, 
It's the moment when he finally sees what he's become and all the damage he's inflicted on so many people. Who are you? It's a life-changing question because it invites us to do two life-changing things. First, it invites us to face up to who we really are. The miracle of deep interchange always requires that we face up honestly to ourselves. We see this clearly in the life of Jacob. Jacob had lived up to his name. He deceived his brother, his father, his father-in-law. He lived his life by fraud and deceit. He lived his life essentially for himself. But the turning point came when he faced up to God's question, who are you? And became honest about who he really was. This wasn't easy for Jacob to do. For years, he actually had avoided using his own name. He tricked his blind father into giving him the blessing by saying, I'm Esau. Years later, when he met the woman of his dreams at a well, he introduced himself not as Jacob, but simply as a son of Rebekah. Jacob had always struggled to accept himself until that wrestling match. When he finally acknowledges, my name is Jacob, and he comes to terms with who he is and what he's become, he, he gets honest with himself and with God. I'm Jacob, the heel-grabbing huckster. It's a moment of radical self-honesty that opens up the way for God to finally redeem him. The great writer, Frederick Buechner, he, he writes about the beauty and the brutal honesty that he comes to cherish in the 12-step group that he attends. He says that people there couldn't be more different. Some are poor, some are rich, some are senior citizens, some are 20-year-olds, but the one thing they have in common is that they all believe they, can, they cannot fully live human lives without each other and without God who will make them well. And he says... They sometimes make serious slips. They sometimes make miraculous gains. They laugh a lot. Once in a while, they cry. They're like families, he says, because in them something which is often extraordinary like truth is spoken, spoken something that is extraordinary like love. And that extraordinary love leads to self-acceptance which is why they can say, I'm Joe, I'm Mary, and I'm an alcoholic or an addict or a bulimic. Do you have someone with whom you can be so honest and transparent and vulnerable? A friend, a spouse, a partner, a mentor, a pastor who can help you see yourself honestly who can speak extraordinary truth in something that is extraordinary like love. Near the end of the Gospel of John, there's a powerful scene. Jesus meets up with Peter after the resurrection. Peter had denied Jesus, denied knowing him or even following him. I swear I don't know the man, he says, three times. It was the lowest point in Peter's life, pretending to be someone else until Jesus shows up later and says, 
Peter, do you love me? And it wasn't so much a question as it was a statement that said, Peter, I know what you've done, and I know who you are, and I love you still. Who are you? It's a life-changing question because it invites us to face up to who we are. And then it invites us to receive God's blessing. Only when we face up to ourselves at a very deep level can we truly experience God's blessing in our lives. And the God of the Bible loves to bless. And these blessings in the Bible come in different and sometimes surprising ways as they do in our own lives. They're often connected with what we need most. Sometimes it comes in the form of forgiveness or in the form of a deep affirmation of our worth or a renewed sense of belonging or a new direction for our lives. And for Jacob, it comes in the form of a whole new future. When Jacob acknowledges his own name before God, God says to him, your name will now be Israel. In those days, the name Israel carried some very powerful meanings, even some very deeply political meanings. But for me, the most compelling meaning was he who wrestles with God. By giving Jacob the new name Israel, God is saying, you're no longer Jacob the cheat who always runs from his past. From now on, you are Israel, the one who is brave enough to face the past head on, to wrestle with it, to subdue it, and ultimately to transcend it in order to face God's future with open arms. This new identity tells us that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, God always has a new future opening to us. We are not defined forever by our past failures, but by future possibility. God has a new name for each of us. This new name reminds us of who we really are and what our true calling the world is. It's tucked away in some words in Scripture written centuries after the life of Jacob by someone who was very close to Jesus. Listen for it carefully. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Children. Beloved. Years ago, I stopped by a hospital to visit one of the members of my church who had just had surgery. As was my custom at the time, I, I, I had asked the front desk if there were any other patients who had registered as Methodists. You could do that back then. If so, I'd typically drop in and offer a prayer if those folks were open to my visit. Most of the time, it turned out they would just register as Methodists simply because their great-grandmother had been a Methodist or Maybe they were married in a Methodist church. Most of them got really nervous whenever I'd drop in on them. But occasionally, someone would invite me to pull up a chair. I remember dropping in on one of those Methodists. He'd gone in for a simple knee surgery, left the hospital, but days later, 
was readmitted for pulmonary embolism as a result of the surgery. His condition was extremely serious. He was in no way out of the woods when I visited him that day. When I introduced myself to him as a Methodist pastor, he became very emotional. He was 40 years old, a very highly successful entrepreneur. He had everything, young family, wealth beyond measure, unlimited opportunities, a bright future. And yet he cried. He told me that day that his brush with death was actually the best thing that could have happened to him, assuming it didn't kill him. He came to see how he'd been living his life and what he was living for, what he was investing himself in, and it humbled him deeply. He committed that day to making some changes in his life, including, among other things, going back to church. And then he asked me for, of all things, a, a blessing. I didn't really know what he meant by a blessing, but I knew he was a man who was wrestling with God, with life, with himself and his future. So I put my hand on his shoulder and said, John, you are blessed. You are a good person. You are God's beloved son. And you have a future. It's what we all want, isn't it? Just to be told that God sees with the eyes of extraordinary love the Jacob that lives in each of us and the Israel that longs to be born in all of us. To be reminded that as as God's beloved, we have a future that does not have to be determined by the past. Takeaways for today. The miracle of deep interchange always requires that we face up honestly to ourselves. God longs to bless us with a new identity. And God promises us a future that does not have to be determined by our past. Marching on to beat I drum 
not scared to be seen I make no apologies This is me Oh, oh, oh. oh, oh, oh. oh, 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 oh. Another round of bullets hits my skin Fire away Today, I won't let the shame sink in We are bursting through the barricades And reaching for the sun We are warriors Yeah, that's what we've become And I won't let them break me down to dust I know that there's a place for us For your glory, yes When the sharpest words want to cut me down Gonna send a flood, gonna drown them out I am brave, I am bruised I am who I'm meant to be This is me, look out cause here I come And I'm marching on to the beat I drum I'm not scared to be seen I make no apologies This is me, to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.